This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. There's been another devastating development in the nearly year-long war in Ukraine. Just days after a Russian missile strike on an apartment building, a helicopter has crashed into a kindergarten on a foggy morning in the suburbs of the capital, Kyiv. Ukraine's interior minister is among at least 14 people who've been killed. A child is also dead, as David Sparks reports. As members of the crowd hold candles in the cold darkness, priests lead a vigil near the site of the tragedy. The helicopter crashed into a kindergarten in the suburb of Kyiv. At least 14 are dead. Nine of those were in the helicopter, and of those killed on the ground, at least one was a child. This man was dropping his five-year-old son off when the crash happened. All was fine, but just as we entered, we heard engine noise. One of the teachers said this may be Iranian-made drones flying. I said, I will have a look, and I opened the curtain in the window. Within five seconds, I saw a huge silhouette of the helicopter. It fell on the opposite side of the roof of the kindergarten. That was it. All I managed to do was shout, take cover, hide, and there was an explosion. The flammable stuff, fuel, it poured into the kindergarten, covering my back. This woman's daughter suffered burns to her face. I honestly thought it was a drone. I went there running and saw the nursery was on fire. I was shocked. I didn't know what had happened to my child. I can't even express what I went through. She says the damage to the kindergarten was severe. They somehow got the children out through the window. They got them out without their shoes, in whatever they were wearing. The teacher took her to a flat. The first floor is completely gone. So the group of children on the first floor was completely crushed by the helicopter as it went through the roof. The Interior Minister, Denis Monastieski, who was on the helicopter, is the most senior official killed since the war began. The officials on the helicopter were due to visit Ukraine's northeastern Kharkiv region. It's still not clear whether this was an accident or the result of some sort of attack. But President Volodymyr Zelensky told the World Economic Forum in Davos that either way, it has a broad connection to the war. This is not an accident. It's a consequence of the war, which has many dimensions, not just on the battlefields. There are no accidents in wartime. This is all the result of the conflict. Since the war started, senior Ukrainian officials regularly travelled by helicopter at low altitudes and high speed, reducing the risk of attack but increasing the dangers involved in flying. Ukraine's security service is investigating the crash. David Sparks reporting. Western leaders are sending their condolences, saying the crash shows once again the huge price that Ukraine is paying in the war. Our global affairs editor John Lyons is in Kyiv and has been to the scene. Kim, it's very confronting. There were a lot of parents, a lot of children around. Uh, many of them, of course, knew some of the children at this kindergarten. Quite confronting to see a kindergarten that has been so damaged. You can see where the helicopter has gone into the kindergarten. You can see the damage from the fire that resulted. So an emotional part of the scene there. And John, given that the Ukrainian interior minister was on board, is there any suggestion that this was deliberate, that this was some sort of sabotage by Russia? Well, the instant reaction from some of the Ukrainians that I was with when the news came through here was that Russia must have been involved somehow. 
Ukrainians are still reeling from that dreadful attack last week when the 950 kilogram warhead missile hit that apartment in Dnipro and buried alive or dead as many as 40 people. But my own inquiries here have suggested strongly that the investigation is showing that in fact Russia was not involved in this, that it was an accident. Now, John, not long after this, uh, President Zelensky appeared via video link at the World Economic Forum in Davos. He asked for a minute's silence for the crash victims. But what was the main theme of his address? There is a real sense here in Ukraine, wherever you go, that Russia is reloading and Russia is preparing a new surge in the next few weeks. They're concerned about a possible push from the north, from Belarus, uh, a new mobilisation of troops. There's a bit of a calm at the moment, but you can see that the troops are preparing themselves. They're moving to various possible front lines. Uh, and the Wagner Group, of course, is on a bit of a roll now, having had that apparent victory in Solidar. So what Ukraine is wanting to do and what President Zelensky stressed at that Davos address is we need more weapons, we need tanks, we need anti-aircraft weapons, and we need them very quickly because Russia is preparing a new attack. Please, his message to the Western world is you must help us urgently. Let's hear from President Zelensky. Tragedies are outpacing life. The tyranny is outpacing the democracy. Russia needed less than one second to start the war. The world needed days to react with first sanctions. The time the free world uses to think is used by the terrorist state to kill. The world must not hesitate today and ever. When the evil seeks revenge, the world needs resolve and speed. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky and before him our Global Affairs Editor John Lyons in Kyiv. Defence analysts are warning that Australia's military spending needs to become more effective. While we expect the Defence Strategic Review to be released in March, the federal government yesterday announced it's spending almost $3 billion buying 40 US Black Hawk helicopters to replace the troubled European-made Taipan fleet. Jane Barden reports it's the latest in a series of decisions that governments have been forced to make after buying underperforming military equipment. In the garrison city of Darwin, there's always expensive military hardware overhead, but some in the community are sceptical about the defence spending decisions made by successive governments. The latest things and also the submarines from a year or two ago, I think it shows uh, a lack of forethought. Um, I think defence spending should take us backseat while Australians are struggling. Considering the substantial chunk of the budget outlay that they take, they really need to be a bit more responsible in how they spend dollars. The new US Black Hawk helicopters are needed because Australia's $3.8 billion Taipans were grounded over safety concerns. $4 billion has been spent on attack-class submarines that were never delivered. The $18 billion joint strike fighter plane purchase has also been beset by cost blowouts and design flaws. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. We want to make sure that Australia has every single dollar that goes into defence goes into the most effective way possible. 
So how could defence spending efficacy be improved? John Blacksland is a professor of international security at the Australian National University. We have a long tradition of looking to buy the best technology money can buy and be prepared to wait for it. And there is a real shift in emphasis now recognising that we need to get better bang for the buck. We have a terrible track record of wanting to tinker with a model that's already available that you could purchase at a reasonable price from Japan, from Korea, from the United States. This then compounded by a overconfidence in our ability to make these decisions. John Coyne is a defence analyst from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The geostrategic environment has changed significantly. So defence really does need to move out of this sort of slow burn, long-term project model that they currently have. Um, Secondly, it would be really great to see defence move away from always pursuing, and we've seen this play out in, you know, we take a perfectly good warship, we want to um, add a whole heap of other things to it, Um, and what we end up with is a frigate that goes slower. Do we need to start looking maybe less at bespoke uh, solutions and start thinking more about what's available today that we could buy off the shelf? We shouldn't always default to buying just off the shelf and neither should we default to we must always have a sovereign capability. You might turn around and say, you know, having a single family of missiles that can be manufactured here in Australia is incredibly important. It's worth the extra cost, but perhaps manufacturing submarines may not. University of New South Wales Professor Peter Jennings is advising governments to give up making political decisions to try to create local jobs instead of prioritising getting the best value equipment. And the story of the purchase of the Taipan was was really one of those. If we rely on this fantasy that somehow we're going to turn Adelaide into a centre for the most complex warship and submarine construction the world has ever seen, I think we're bound for disappointment. And therefore, you know, cutting our cloth according to our needs is probably the place where Australian governments are at on defence spending now. UNSW Professor Peter Jennings speaking with Jane Barden. As parts of Australia recover from flooding, it's not just homes, farms and infrastructure that's been affected. A new poll shows climate-induced extreme weather is also taking a toll on the mental health of people living through it. Isabel Masali reports. In early 2020, John Grono and Donna Andrews lost their home in the Black Summer bushfires. They described that first night as brutal, but the years since have been like living in the wilderness. Over the last three years, we've lived in six different places, more than I've ever lived in in my entire life. Uh, but the people in Bundanoon have been incredibly helpful for us. People you know, want to help you, but you don't know what you're doing. The couple's rebuilding in the New South Wales Southern Highlands, but in several ways, it hasn't been easy. There are days where you simply can't do anything. And Donna and I both have the, that's, those days where we're not, not right, but what we call each other the rocks. We look at each other and say, are you OK? And the answer's no. And you know, they, they lift you back up and you know, Donna's my rock. A survey conducted by the polling company YouGov and commissioned by the Climate Council has been trying to measure the mental health impact of climate disasters. From a sample of 2,000 people, it found 80% have experienced heat waves, flooding, bushfires, droughts or other extreme events since 2019. Dr Simon Bradshaw says more than half of those surveyed saw an impact on their mental health. 
He's the Climate Council's research director. So we did expect the results to be quite confronting. But what we found nonetheless was uh, really quite shocking how widespread these challenges are from the cities to the countries to the remotest corners of Australia. But it is clear that we need to do so much more as a country to be providing the necessary mental health support and to ensure that people can still thrive in the face of escalating extreme weather disasters. The poll found Australians have been impacted in a range of ways, from anxiety to depression, PTSD and sleep problems. And 40% reported there wasn't enough mental health support. Mental health organisation Beyond Blue was involved in putting the survey together. Its lead clinical advisor, Dr Grant Blaschke, says it sends a strong message. Climate change is not just an environmental issue, it's very much a social and a mental health issue as well, and we need to be proactive. So it's great that we can send out mental health services during emergency situations, but what we'd love to see is that we take a step back and be much more planned about it. He warns these events can have a lasting impact and people need long-term support. So building the capacity of our mental health system, diversifying the workforce. So that includes everything from mental health first aid right through to the specialised mental health services and not forgetting our GPs. And with more extreme weather events expected, he says we need to be prepared. Isabel Masali reporting. From today, teachers who've spent four years working in very remote communities can have their entire hex debt waived. It's a scheme introduced by the previous government, but it's hoped it might now start to reverse crippling teacher shortages in outback communities. Here's National Education reporter Gabriella Marchant. First Nations mum Tammy Abala would love for all of her four children to be educated on country in the Tiwi Islands north of Darwin. There's definitely elements and there's things that they've learnt, like life lessons and stuff that they've learnt um, throughout their schooling on country that they can't get that anywhere else. But she says while local teachers do their best, the high turnover of educators in remote areas like Millicuppity, where she lives, means she's had to make the difficult decision to send her children to boarding school at different stages of their education. A non-alignment of methodologies and the, the pedagogies that, that are needed to really give access in a way that suits Aboriginal kids. And a lot of that comes from time spent on country. But Miss Abala says teachers must be supported, not blamed. They're doing the best they can and they're often understaffed and under-resourced. And there's some really good people in there, but they need support. One way the federal government is trying to do that is by waiving teachers' hex debt. In 2019, before the pandemic supercharged the nationwide teacher shortage, the Morrison government, with support from Labor, introduced a scheme to cancel the debt if teachers work in very remote areas for four years or longer. From today, the scheme is open for applications. The Education Minister, Jason Clare, hopes it will both attract teachers to remote areas and encourage them to stay. It also applies to early learning teachers who work in preschools, and long daycare centres, and it's effectively uh, taking a debt of $35,000 off your shoulders. Andrew Gravestocks is a principal at one of those schools, the Sejuna Area School on South Australia's far west coast. I'm I'm certainly, from my perspective, hoping that it it works really well for those who are eligible. But he says the scheme's still not widely known, 
And hiring teachers ahead of the 2023 school year has been tough. This year is the, the toughest year in my 20 plus years as a principal, um, finding teachers. Um, so we're, we're still looking for a couple right now. And, um, you know, so are many other schools at this point in time. Remote Arnhem Land teacher Daniel McLaren says working remotely can be intimidating at first. And obviously it's a big, big move for people to leave their families and, and what they know and move out to basically to a different country. He says while he thinks the scheme is a net positive, better cultural training and support through their qualifications and career would help teachers stay. In the Tiwi Islands, Miss Abala agrees. And when they arrive, they actually can have an impact from the get-go. We don't have to wait four years in for them to be trained up by the community. Tiwi Islands mum Tammy Abala speaking with Gabriella Marchant. You've probably heard by now that Australia is in the midst of a potato chip shortage. It's been looming for a while, but pubs and fish and chip shops say it's really starting to bite. So some businesses have resorted to making their own chips. Here's National Regional Reporter Eliza Borello. Making chips from scratch, even with a chipping machine, is a slow process. But it's the only way Perth burger bar owner Matt Graham Helwig can keep them on the menu. We started doing this on Friday, just the last Friday last week. So I'm actually loading the potatoes into the machine so then they'll get cut and put straight into the tub. And then we soak them for a few hours. And then we have to like half fry them and then fry them again. And then they're actually ready to go. So. We have, to, we have to do it this way now because we just can't get any chips. It's taking up to 20 hours of his working week, but Matt Graham Helwig says it would be almost impossible to open if he didn't. Especially at a sports burger bar, which every meal that we sell has chips. It'd be kind of like, what else could I do? Our wedges are too expensive, sweet potato chips are too expensive, and you can't have onion rings or anything like that. So it goes with everything that we sell. So we have to. Harry Stevens runs a business making potato crisps in Port Melbourne, and he's been hit by the potato shortage this month too. Demand for chappies at the moment is at an all-time high, um, and we just don't have enough supply to meet it. It could take up to a month to sort of get back to having a supply there to supply our customers. The chip crunch is thanks to a perfect storm hitting the global potato industry. Michael Coote from the industry body Ausveg says droughts in Europe and the United States have restricted supplies of imported potato products. And local chip producers have struggled because of wet conditions in key Australian chipping potato growing regions. Some of those um, adverse weather events that, that impacted northern Tasmania and, and particularly Ballarat region in Late 21 and early 22. He's hopeful potato crops currently in the ground will eventually ease the shortage. Potato crops, they don't grow and aren't harvested as quickly as some other fresh vegetables. And so it will take a couple of months before I think, um, you know, we're really seeing supply loosening up. Woolworths has confirmed there's now pressure on supermarket chip prices, while Coles is continuing to restrict purchases of frozen chip bags to two per customer. Back at Matt Graham Helwig's burger bar, there's been an upside of sorts to the shortage. He's decided his house-made chips are cheaper and will be staying on the menu. And these chips do taste better and they're local. It's easier to get. You know you're going to get it. You're going to get the same chip every time, not compared to what we are getting the last five months. So we're going to stick. I think we'll just stick to this. Perth Burger Bar owner Matt Graham Helwig ending Eliza Borello's report. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.